I've been having a, a good time just learning more about the organic potential of God's kingdom. Now, when I use the word organic, what you need to think of is something very simple. It's just Jesus' organic parables, like plant a seed in the ground, okay? Um, the mustard seed parable, uh, the parable of the sower, and the parable of the soils. Um, all those parables, I used to take them as kind of nice teachings about the mysterious nature of the kingdom of God, and then I read Paul's stuff for literal instruction about the church. And now I've reversed that. I look at Jesus' teachings about the kingdom so I can understand the church. You know, And when I don't see the things that Jesus talks about, then it makes me wonder, well, what's going on? Because he argues it's natural. He compares us. You know, he was a carpenter, so he didn't need to use <laughs> organic parables. In fact, he probably only used two carpentry parables in all of his teachings. And that's a stretch. Maybe the foundation, you know, build the house on the good foundation and plank eye, you know, the speck in your own eye. Maybe a carpentry. He probably got some specks in his eyes now and then. But, um, but he used a lot of natural parables, even stuff like weddings, you know, family life. That's organic. That's natural life, you know. And, uh, and I believe the kingdom is natural. And uh, we were singing earlier about, I love that song. I never heard that version of the Lord's Prayer in a song before. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done. That's, that's been the cry of my heart. And today's message, the teaching I've got for you today is, um, is about, it's about this. <clears throat> Are you chasing a dream that you have for your life, or are you pursuing with all you've got God's vision for His kingdom? And I do think it's an either-or. I think it can come to a place where it's not an either-or anymore, where both are the same thing. But are you chasing a dream you've got for your own life, or are you pursuing God's vision for His kingdom? I'm going to take a drink of this water. Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Um... I had great, great folks. Uh, they were super patient with me. And my story begins uh, as a story of transformation. I'm going to tell you some of my story. I was a violent youth. I was physically abusive in the home with my mother and my sister between the ages of 10 to 17. I was punching out windows and kicking in doors, and I could not control my temper. Um, oftentimes, I would lose my temper because I had... Uh, a terrible sense of who I was, even though I got constant nurturing and encouragement from two amazing parents. There was something else inside me um, that had an appetite I couldn't satisfy. And uh, when I was 10 years old, uh, I, my dad was a part of a church community in Champaign, Illinois on a university campus. And people would like walk by me all the time. Like I'd be sitting out in the back step just looking angry, you know, and people were like, oh, there's, hey, John, and they keep on walking. And, uh, but this one guy from Nairobi, Kenya, Nafat, he used to plop down on the grass next to me, lace his arms about his knees, and he would look me in the eye and he would talk to me. He would talk to me. And he wouldn't rush or wouldn't hurry. That made such a huge impression on me. I cannot tell you, you know, take note of who you walk by and who you don't spend time with today. One of the things that got me about Jake when I first met Jake was I knew Jake was about it. I saw him connecting with kids at U-Fest. Uh, and I saw how he would look at them in the eye and listen to them, and he would not hurry and would not rush. He was there to be about those kids. And when I saw that, whoo, that fired me up because that's how I was transformed, through somebody being patient with me. <clears throat> and uh, made a big impression on me. And years later, when I was 17, I was a part of Pasadena Church of the Nazarene's youth group 
And uh, I got in a fight in that huge gymnasium on that campus, and the entire board was looking down on those big windows up top. And uh, one guy in particular who I know, and I love, he loves me too today. But at that time, he said, uh, that kid should be banned from this church campus. And you guys uh, may not know, you know McGuire Wax? Anybody familiar with McGuire Wax? Kind of the fancy stuff, all right? Mr. and Mrs. McGuire attended Pasadena First Church of the Nazarene, and they were there. They saw me, and they said, nope, that kid's not going to be banned. If it's all right with you, I'm gonna, we're going to pay for him to go on every single youth trip there is until he's out of high school. So I went on every youth group trip for the next three years for free, and I never knew why. Huddle, you're going. That's what my youth pastor would always say. Man, I don't want to go. Well, you are going. All right, I do want to go. And then I would get to go. And uh, um, <clears throat> when I was 17 years old, I got in the worst fight I'd ever gotten into. I broke all the bones in my right hand. I permanently damaged another person who was actually at the time a friend. Just added me on Facebook like six months ago, which is crazy. Um, uh, I just wonder. I know God must be doing amazing things in his life for him to do something like that. But uh, um, I was at uh, Camp Idlewild when it happened, and <clears throat> I was angry because a lot of my, my buddies were giving their testimony that night, and uh, they were all followers of Jesus, and they had not been before, and I was upset about that. There were other things that were going on at the time, and that night they took me to the, uh, the big uh, fire pit gathering at the, at the kind of amphitheater under the stars, and... Um, and, uh, and God met me that night. And I won't give you all the details of that night, but just that night alone just was an amazing story because I, I used to lose my hearing when I would fight. First time I'd get punched, I couldn't hear anything, man. And I would just go at it. And that night sitting there while people were preaching the word and giving their testimonies, I lost my hearing. And I kind of freaked out a little bit. And, uh, um, and then at the end of it, this old guy walked up to me and said, are you ready to pray, son? And I said, yep. Walked down to the fire pit, and he said, so what's the problem? I said, I know I'm going to hell, but I'm not even worried about that. I'm terrified of going home today, tomorrow because I didn't know what I was going to do with my mom and my sister when, I, you know, when my temper erupted. <laughs> he said, well, let's pray about that. So I prayed what I was later told was a theologically inaccurate prayer. <clears throat> Insufficient. <laughs> I prayed, uh, God, I'm terrified to go home. I want to be a better son and a better brother. Make me like Jesus. Make me like Jesus. And in that moment, he touched me, and he killed me. And he raised me from the dead. Transformed a new creature in Christ. Went home a month past, didn't lose my temper. My mom, she was paying attention. Two months, and my dad was paying attention. After three months, I had a relationship with my sister again. Yeah, she later named her son after me. Isn't that crazy? Don't like talk to her, okay? Just let her keep doing what she's doing. It's awesome. I get to be, you know, so positive. And uh, miraculously, I got into college, ended up teaching after I gra graduated uh, from a second-ranked creative writing program, ended up teaching at the University of Illinois. God had called me to serve him full-time with my life, and when I was called, I thought that meant go to seminary, get $100,000 in debt, and then work in the church. That was my goal. <laughs> I was driven to achieve that, and God shut that down uh, by getting me into this creative writing program. Now, I'll never forget, I was at the Alabama Ice House. I was sipping on a club soda, and Young Smith, one of the students in my pro pro program, was on beer number three. He said, Huddle, what's up with you, man? 
I said, what are you talking about? He said, dude, why are you here? And he pointed across the street at a Catholic seminary. That's right there in Houston, Texas. He said, why aren't you there? And I said, dude, because God wants me to be here with you right now, man, sipping my club soda. He said, dude, I'm glad you're here, but I got to warn you, this is seminary for the enemy. I never forgot that. And I worked in what Young Smith described as seminary for the enemy for 12 years. And I saw churches happen in those environments. Unchurched people come to Christ. One of my students, when I was 26, he came up to me. He said, Huddle, I got you figured out. I said, what do you got figured out? You believe in God. I was like, oh, you're a genius. What, what brought you to that conclusion? He said, well, all these books you pick us. You know, you got us going from Ernest Hemingway's Depravity all the way into Zora Neale Hurston and her desire to know God more. And I, I know you're leading us somewhere. I don't know where yet, but I know it has to do with believing in God. I'm like, so do you not believe in God? He says, no, I don't believe in God. I said, well, what don't you believe about God? And he said, what? I said, what don't you believe about God? He said, uh, mm, uh, uh, uh. He couldn't answer the question. I said, man, you don't even know whether you believe in God or not. You need an Agnostics Anonymous group, man. <laughs> and I said it as a passing thought, and that next week, this kid, his name was Radomir Nuorcel. He is now a missionary in Poland. He came up to me, and he said, yo, Huddle, when are you starting that thing, man? I said, what thing? He said, that AA group, man. <laughs> yeah. So AA was born in my apartment. And students showed up high, showed up drunk, dropped four-letter words during the discussion. But I always positioned Jesus at the center of those groups and saw lives transformed. And one group turned to two, and two groups turned to three. And I panicked at that because I couldn't be at all three groups. And uh, my pastor, who was this old trucker in central Illinois, Jeffrey Stark, he talked with that old pastor voice. Some of you know about it. John! You know, he used to get up on his toes. And when he really wanted to talk to me, he would get up on his toes He'd say, I'm telling you, those are churches. You need to treat them like the church. And I would say, no, 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 no. What we do on Sunday morning between 1030 and noon, that's the church. When I wear my holy clothes and speak my holy language and sing my holy songs. And I was not joking. I was dead serious. I was terrified to call anything God was giving birth to out in the community of the church. And Jeffrey Stark said to me, I'll never forget this. He says, John, I'm a Bible college pastor. I was a lifetime trucker. I love Jesus with all my heart, and I believe in the pure heart, and will never surrender that ground. And I do too, by the way. But he said, I can't go where you're going. I know it as clear as anything. And if you don't go and aren't intentional where you're at, that's not right. So, got a job at the University of Texas. Two weeks after I was married, we moved down to South Texas. And God did the same thing on the college campus down there. And I told you a little bit about that story. And then L.A. came came and called us up. Moved out to Los Angeles in 2007, and it was, a, it was a hard landing. Walked up to the, drove into town. My best friend was driving. My sister-in-law, who, um, who's actually in town right now, that's why my family's not with me. We have a ton of family in town for my daughter's birthday. Uh, she was driving with my wife, and uh, we had just lost a baby to miscarriage five days before that move. We got out, front, pulled up to the parsonage, got out, walked in the front grass, and there was a man standing there on the curb. And he put his finger in my face and he said, I want to tell you something. I was here before you got here, and I will be here when you are gone. 
Welcome to the parsonage. And that's what we moved into. And that was God's will too. Now let me tell you, that's when my message begins right there. Because at that moment of tension, that was not the idea my wife and I had for our lives. Our idea was that we were going to come out and effortlessly do what we had done on two college campuses. We didn't know God was going to plunk us back into a salt cave. You know what a salt cave is? These salt caves in Utah, you heard about them? You pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars to store things in them. They rent out space in them because where salt is and that, that, those high levels, they perfectly preserve whatever you put in the cave, but nothing biologic can exist. And that church was exactly like that. It was a salt cave, preserving a certain doctrine, a certain memory of the past, some good things. But nothing living was there. I'll never forget the first time I met with them. They all sat in the church, and one of them said to me, we all hate each other's guts, and I don't know why we're here. And she just started to weep. But I believe we're supposed to be here. So she said, and in my heart, I just felt like God say, in a year, they're going to know why. In a year, you just trust me. In a year, they're going to know why. So I shelved all my plans and fell in love with all 13 of those people one by one. It was some tough love sometimes, buddy. <laughs> but I love that church family. I love them. And I've been honored by the time. But I, when I tell my story, I have to be honest about it. Because I feel like, you know, if I put a bold face on it and give you the, the easy version, you're going to think it was easy. And it wasn't easy. And there have been temptations for us. I had a leader who's in accountability with me right now. I have a leader who's planting a church in his apartment. He says, you've really hurt me, John. This is about three weeks ago. I said, man, what did I do? He said, well, you didn't do it directly to me, but you said something a while back that's really bothered me, and I think you might have targeted toward me. I said, okay, what was that? He said, you said a plateaued leader or a leader who ceased to grow always looks for green grass elsewhere. And I, I did say that, and it was not targeted to him at all. And I told him that, and the Lord encouraged me on that. And a couple weeks later, we reconnected. And he came to a different understanding of that. I, I believe with all my heart that when you pursue a particular idea you have of your life, it's difficult to see fruit arrive. But man, when you pursue God's vision for your life, the fruit will be 30, 60 to 100 fold. One of the songs we sang said, unchangeable, unshakable, unstoppable. That's what you are. Matthew 16 says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Who's the I? Who's saying that? Jesus. Who's the my? Whose church is it? So I, Jesus, will build my, not John's, my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It's not I will build your church or you will build my church. When Jesus is given ownership over the building and ownership of the church, she's unstoppable. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Gates are defensive structures. You don't come out and battle people with gates. <laughs> gates are defensive structures. So when Jesus owns and builds his church, we're at the gates, man. We're knocking them down. That's when we see lives transformed, miracles take place. People totally surrendering their, their lives to God's vision. Turn with me. If you've got a Bible, <clears throat> you can flip to Isaiah with me. <clears throat> I appreciate your patience as I cough. I, I am struggling with a little bit of a head cold right now. Um, don't worry. It will not hold me down. But uh, <clears throat> I want to start 
in Isaiah chapter 30, if you're new to this whole like looking through the Bible thing, and you're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, just hang a left, you'll find a whole bunch of names you can't pronounce, and then you'll find Isaiah. And if you're in Genesis or any of the early books, hang a right, go past Psalms and Proverbs, you'll eventually find Isaiah, and we're going to start chapter 30, verse 19. Verse 19 says, oh, people in Zion, oh, all right. Say it again. Oh, okay, no problem. Oh, people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. I'm going to read that again. Oh, people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. I'm going to read this one more time. I want you to hear this, and even if you've got to close your eyes, don't feel weird about that. I want you to listen to this verse. O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you with the sound of your cry. And when he hears it, he will answer you. So I get a few questions whenever I read that passage. Um, uh, who are these people, and why are they weeping? Number one. Two, what's that cry about? When Sydney cries, my little girl, it's different when she's hurt and when she wants something. When Elijah cries, it's different when he's got a poopy in his pants or when he's hungry or when he just wants mama. In fact, yesterday morning, I got to go get him up. I was at World Vision headquarters all last week. It was so intense. We had staff retreat on top of new employee training, and I'm like getting all this amazing information, and I just crashed Friday night. That's when I got the head cold and just, just uh, crashed. Saturday morning, though, I got to wake my boy up. I heard him in there talking, went into the room, and he was sitting in his crib talking, and when he saw me, he went. <laughs> started to cry. Because he wants mama in the morning, not dad. And it's been that way his whole life, all right? <clears throat> so I want to know what kind of cry these people are crying, okay? And... Uh, <clears throat> Let's go back to verse 1, and let's find out who these people are. Chapter 30, verse 1. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine, and make an alliance, but not on my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt, your humiliation. For their princes are at Zone, and, and their ambassadors arrive at Hanes. Everyone will be ashamed because of a people who cannot profit them, who are not for help or profit, but for shame, and also reproach. How many times are you going to say shame, Isaiah? Through a land of distress and anguish, from where come lioness and lion, viper and flying serpent, they carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on camels, humps, to a people who cannot profit them. Even Egypt, whose help is vain and empty. Therefore I have called her Rahab, that means sea serpent, Rahab who has been exterminated. Now go. Write it on a tablet before them and inscribe it on a scroll that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not 
prophesy to us what is right, speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. What a passage. What a passage, man. When Jeffrey Stark said to me, those are, that's the church, you've got to treat those groups like the church, I was essentially saying, no, 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 no. I've got my own understanding of what this is. And in truth, the church at that time of my life was my Egypt. I want to say that again. The church was my Egypt. I sought safety and shelter from the church. Not from the Lord. Because I was going through an incredibly difficult time in my life that year. And 19 people, all of them had gray-haired wigs on. Great. Why would you get a wig that's gray-haired? All of them had gray hair. All right. My grandma, my aunt were in that group. And that church was designated as a church in crisis by the district. But those people loved me back to life. And I would have laid down my life for those people. And so when he told me, you need to go there, I said, no, 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 I want to stay here. You following me? All right. You might have a vision of... <sighs> you might have a vision or a dream for your own life that drives you and even causes conflict for you in your life. Yeah, I used to teach literature. That's what I taught. And, uh, I taught Cormac McCarthy. I, uh, I went to El Paso and camped out two days at a Luby's to find Cormac McCarthy. I had heard through a friend of a friend that he ate there every day. That's called stalking, <laughs> and, uh, and it's illegal. Um, so don't do that. It was a miracle that I did not find Cormac McCarthy. He's a, a Pulitzer Prize winning writer. <clears throat> if you've never heard of him, he wrote the book that the movie No Country for Old Men is based on, won the Oscar a couple years ago, and then he wrote a, book, a new movie called The Roads based on, but he also wrote a book called All the Pretty Horses. I've got a quote from that book. If it's not on, yeah? i got a quote from that book I want to share with you. And this book is about a 16-year-old kid named John Grady. He lives on the largest land-grant ranch in South Texas, and his mom sells the ranch when his granddad dies so she can go be an actor, a actor in Hollywood. Crushes his heart because his dream is to be that cowboy, you know, and he is an awesome cowboy. So he gets his best friend and another kid, and they ride horses south into Mexico, searching for that dream where they can live on that cow ranch, and they're going to do whatever they you know, whatever their hearts desire. Isn't that a great idea? Just get out there and get on the road and, and go seek that dream. And at one point, there's a description of that dream, and I want to read this to you. <clears throat> I'm going to actually read it up off the screen, too. At night, he dreamt of horses. Now, this is a bit of a poetic description, okay? But it captures this dream. That night, he dreamt of horses in a field on a high plain where the spring rains had brought up the grass and the wildflowers out of the ground. And the flowers ran all blue and yellow as far as the eye could see. And in the dream, he was among the horses running. And in the dream, he himself could run with the horses. And they coursed the young mares and fillies over the plain where the rich bay and the rich chestnut colors shone in the sun. And the young colts ran with their dams and trampled down the flowers in a haze of pollen that hung in the sun like powdered gold. And they ran, he and the horses, out along the high mesas where the ground resounded under their running hooves. And they flowed and changed and ran. And their manes and rails blew off of them like spume. And there was nothing else at all in that high world. And they moved all of them in a resonance that was like a music among them. 
And they were none of them afraid, horse nor colt nor mare. And they ran in that resonance which is the world itself and which cannot be spoken but only praised. Doesn't that sound awesome? Do you know when he dreamt that? In prison. Because when he went south into Mexico, he did find a ranch owned by an awesome man, a hacendado. He fell in love with his daughter. Broke the Hacendado's trust. Broke the daughter's heart. Left that family in emotional desolation. Went on another journey. And one of the three buddies ends up killed. The other buddy, his best friend, ends up disillusioned by the violence and insanity that they deal with. He's in prison too. And he's not dreaming that dream. But that dream still drives John Grady, even though now he's in prison, recovering from a stab wound. Guys, we are that way. We get so fixed on an idea, and it can be a beautiful, incredibly romantic idea. This is my idea for my life. This is how I'm going to live my life. That we become blind to the fact that our idea is driving conflict. And I'm not talking about, I came to bring peace. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I'm not talking about that kind of conflict. I'm talking about a conflict that negatively damages other people and keeps us strung along in this false idea of our future because we're seeking safety in Egypt. We're not seeking safety in God's vision for our lives. Because here's the truth, man. Texas was getting fenced off in the late 40s, early 50s. That life was over. And he could have had a new opportunity and a wonderful life, but he didn't have the vision to see it. He didn't have the vision to see it. I identify so much with that story. Who are these folks crying this cry? Well, the text says they're rebellious children who make plans that aren't God's. They make alliances, but they're not of the Spirit. There's nothing wrong with safety and shelter. But they were running to Egypt for those things. And so God says, man, it's like you're piling sin on top of sin. Do you know what sin on top of sin is? Chaos. Sin is rejecting God. So if you have a foundation of rejecting God, and on that you build a, a structure of rejecting God, that's a, that's a jacked up structure. You don't want to live in that house. But they were living in that house. So the result, no one was proud of them. Nobody was proud of them. They are no help. They pass through a land of desolation and anguish. And finally, they hit rock bottom. We talk about rock bottom in AA groups and NA groups. You know what rock bottom is? Rock bottom is when you realize your depravity. And you know there's no way out but through God's help. And so what does rock bottom look like in this context? Well, you're a son who refuses to listen. You say, speak to us pleasant words. People in your church family bring a challenge to you. Oh, it bugs you. You're like, okay, I'm at church. Yep, doing the right thing here. That's nice, that's nice, that's nice. Okay, Monday, I'm back to my real life. See, that's, that's a son who won't listen. You want pleasant words spoken to you. And I'm not being mean right now. I've been there, man. I have been there. Bruce Springsteen wrote about it 40 years ago. He described it this way in his song, Jungle Land. The poets around here don't write nothing at all. They just stand back and let it all be. That's essentially what we want. Our modern-day poets are pastors and preachers and teachers. They're there to speak truth to us. The prophets in our community are there to speak truth to us, to get us to listen to God's voice. But if we don't want to listen to His voice, it means we want to listen to something else. The scariest thing of all these verses is verse 10 to me. Because it leads to everything else. 
Verse 10, it says they desire illusion. They desire illusion. Illusion is the rejection of reality. Oftentimes people say, oh, you Christians, man, you don't live in reality. The truth is, we do live in reality. The moment we begin following Jesus, a veil is ripped off our eyes. And we see bullets flying and, and, and bombs going off, stuff we never even knew was, going, was happening before. But if knowing that reality, we ignore it and continue to pursue this destructive vision that we have for our life, it could be positive, like seeking safety and shelter. But if it's not God's vision, we're not going to see what he wants to unfold in our lives. In 2005, I injured my knee. I tore the meniscus in my right knee. And I had two surgeons tell me if I didn't have surgery, I would never walk without pain again. And I would never run or be able to exercise. But I, being a coward, did not get get surgery for my knee. Instead, I put on 45 pounds and I took the elevator. All right? We moved out to California in 2007 and a year and a half ago, I was at Pete's Coffee Shop in Marina Del Rey and my buddy Lyle Randall was sitting there having coffee with me at 7 in the morning. He said, John, I'm going to pray for you. Complain about something. I said, complain about something? He said, yeah, man, complain about something for once in your life. And so he, <laughs> my wife gets mad too because I don't vent, you know. Sometimes she likes to vent, you know. Sometimes people need to vent. I, I don't like venting. I just, it's never helped me. It always actually causes problems. So she never complained about anything. Complain about something. I said, man, what do I have to complain about? I'm married to my soulmate. I love being a dad. Get all these kids, man, and our, and our nonprofit, and they're all really bad. And I love that, you know, because I was. And I said, I wish I could play like basketball with them on Wednesday nights. But, you know, just being around them and say, hey, uh, what did you say? Lyle said. I said, I wish I could play basketball with him. And then I, he said, tell me about that. So I told him about my knee. Like 30 seconds. Right in the middle of it, he reached over, he laid his hand on my knee. And he just started praying for my knee. Didn't say a hokey, phony word. Wasn't any mysterious stuff. He wasn't, didn't sound crazy. He prayed that God would totally heal my knee and allow me to play basketball with those boys. Now, I don't have many stories like this. This is my weird, crazy story. So get ready. I heard my knee locking up inside me. It was like a transformer coming back together. I'm not exaggerating. And I thought, oh, oh, oh something's happening. Oh, don't think about it. It'll go away. Oh, and then I thought about it, and it didn't go away. He said amen, and God stuck his thumb on my back and said, tell him what I did. I said, Lyle, man, God just healed my knee. He said, all right, let's go play some basketball. That night, I played basketball at Westchester Park for three hours without pain. The next night, I played with my boys at U First, the, non, the organic outreach uh, that my wife and I started at Westchester High School. My wife saw me playing from a balcony. I looked up, and she was like, she'd never seen me do anything like that before. God totally used that weakness in my life. I did a Jillian Michaels workout DVD secretly. After that, uh, I was a little embarrassed of doing aerobics in my house. <clears throat> lost nine pounds. Did another 90-day workout after that. Lost 35 pounds. And at the end of that workout, the guy who wrote it says, now go out and run a marathon. It's like, you're crazy. But at that same time, about 40 days into that workout, I was out in my garage. used to work out between midnight and 1 a.m. after my extremely pregnant wife and my blonde tornado went to sleep. Right. And I remember doing the sit-up routine, and I rolled over on my face at one point and just started to weep. 
because I had no teaching to support ministry that fall. I didn't have health insurance. I was a couple weeks away from having a baby without health insurance. We did have a baby without health insurance, man. That's crazy. And uh, I said, God, I don't know what to do. I was applying for every teaching job on planet Earth, including two jobs at two universities that I'm being very honest right now. I don't think they should exist. They're not ethically right. But I was at that point where I was compromising my own integrity. That's what relying on your strengths will do. Relying on my resume to get me a job. And I just finally rolled over and I prayed what we sang earlier. Give us this day my daily bread. I believe, God, you're going to provide my daily bread for me. And I meant it. Like, I really meant it. Like, I laid it all out there. So I'm not going to rely on resume anything anymore. And that next morning, eight hours later, I got a phone call from Betty Jacobs at West Los Angeles College. She says, John, I got great news for you. I got two classes for you to teach. I said, Betty, this is a miracle. She's not a believer. She said, John, it's got to be something. <laughs> because I couldn't get you off my mind all night last night and all day today. And we've not offered any classes to anyone in seven months. It is a miracle. And God did it in a way where only he could get credit for it, you know. And then three months later, World Vision called me up. Now I'm doing what I'm doing. I ran my first half marathon uh, in June. I was able to, through God's help, raise about 1700 for clean water for kids in Kenya. And uh, I never would have designed this job for myself, never saw it coming. But I love it. And, uh, and I know I'm, I'm probably going a little over my time, but I've got to tell you just, just one more story, man. Throughout all this, we've seen through the last four years, God do amazing things. Started a church in a park with the homeless. I didn't intend to start it. We went to the park to celebrate that one of our house groups that was meeting in a house, full of unchurched folks, they were so big they couldn't meet in the house anymore. So they were going to separate into two houses. Hey, to celebrate that, we all had a party. And at the party, two people that lived in the park came to the party. And one of my guys, Terrence, walked up to me and he said, John, we got to come back to this park next week. I said, what are you talking about, man? So we just celebrated giving birth to this church over here. We're just here for a party. He said, you always say to me, I need to have x-ray vision. I need to be able to see into people's lives through the walls of their homes. You know, I can't do that, John. But those people came this week. They were with us. And we need to stay with them. So Terrence and two other guys came back that following week. And God took five people and grew it to seven. And in six weeks, six weeks, six weeks, it was 32. And now today there are no homeless people in Westchester Park. There were 42 people when we started that road. There are zero today. We saw the last two. We helped the last two get off the streets last week. Dave and Dina. And they're doing it praising God the whole way. Now, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't understand how to help homeless people or people in poverty. We had none of those gifts. But God does. And so my mission is to encourage you to go, to be intentional. You know, we talk a lot about outreach, and I like the concept of outreach. All right? But you have to remember, the dangerous thing about the concept of outreach is it implies your feet are planted and you're reaching out. Pulling in. Jesus didn't say outreach into all the world and make disciples. He said go into all the world and make disciples. And the advantage of going is you get to actually move your feet. And you're not limited to a specific physical space. And as my buddy Neil always says, you want to see a church happen? 
new church with unchurched people. You're going to have to sit in the smoking section. You're going to have to go where the hurting people are. And if you go, Jesus will meet you there. He will meet you there every time. He'll never, ever let you down. That's why you've got to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all your ways, and He will make your paths straight. And this is what it sounds like after He's done what He's done. It says here, verse 18, Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore He waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for Him. The word Lord there is Yahweh. Isaiah never spoke that word in his entire life. That was the unpronounceable name of God. And every time a scribe wrote that word, whenever they wrote Elohim, the scribe threw out the quill and wrote Elohim with a brand new quill. Did you know that? 19 times in one chapter, 19 quills. Every time it came to El Shaddai, threw out the quill and threw out the ink. Brand new quill, brand new ink. But every time it came to the name Yahweh, which was an impronounceable name, he left his desk. The scribe went on a hike outside of the camp. Stripped down and performed the cleansing ritual. And hiked all the way back into the camp. Got a brand new quill and brand new ink just to write that name. Came to that name 19 times, like it's mentioned 19 times in this chapter. He did that, it took him 19 days to copy that chapter. That God who is awesome, all-knowing, all-powerful, full of strength that you can never measure, that God wants to do things in your life you don't have the imagination for. Your dreams can't, they can't contain it. I mean, you know what it's like being a part of God's vision? Listen to the end of chapter 30. Listen to what he says. Verse 25. On every lofty mountain and on every high hill there will be streams running with water on the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. The light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. And the light of the sun will be seven times brighter like the light of seven days on the day of the Lord binds up the fracture of His people and heals the bruise He has inflicted. That's what it's like being in God's vision, man. It's like the sun, but times seven. So we're going to sing a song, I think, here. Yeah? And just as we sing this song, I just want to give you a chance to just go to God and talk to Him and ask Him, God, man, am I being driven by some dream I've got? I mean, these guys believed in God. They all believed in God. But they were still seeking safety in Egypt. Are you doing that? Or are you seeking safety? in the Almighty God and seeking His vision for your life. Thank you for this chance to get us speaking.